Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Good afternoon. Today I'd like to provide an update on the crisis involving Russia and Ukraine. From the beginning of this crisis, I have been absolutely clear and consistent. The United States is prepared no matter what happens. We are ready with diplomacy, to be engaged in diplomacy with Russia, and our allies and partners to improve stability and security in Europe as a whole. And we are ready to respond decisively to Russian attack on Ukraine, which is still very much a possibility. Though all the events of the last few weeks and months this has been our approach, and it remains our approach now. In November 2013, then-Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych rejected a deal for greater integration with the European Union. That decision would continue to have repercussions that reach out to this very moment today. His decision went against public opinion. It sparked mass protests, and it led to a violent put-down by the Yanukovych regime. On one side, Russia backed Yanukovych, and on the other, the US and European allies supported the protesters. And what followed was the start of a brutal conflict. This is the Warfare Podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode, we welcome Henry Langston, who reported from the front lines of the Ukraine conflict for Vice in 2014. Henry reveals the political tensions, the forms that warfare took, its impact on civilians, and the personal stories of fighters who took up arms to defend their nation, something which, at time of recording, they may well need to do again in the face of renewed Russian aggression. I know you're going to find this one fascinating. It provides insight into the recent history of tensions in Ukraine and a look at what may lay ahead if diplomacy fails. So here now is Henry Langston on the Ukraine crisis. Hi Henry, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you, James. Cheers. Good to hear. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. We've covered this in a couple of different ways. We had Professor Chris Bellamy on the podcast, who provided us with an excellent longer history of Ukraine, going back to the Russo-Turkish War. And we had Elizabeth Braw telling us about the Winter War between Finland and the Soviet Union, and some of the lessons we might be able to take from that about the Ukraine crisis. But... 
we have not had anyone come on, an expert, tell us about more of the recent history, the context behind the beginning of the latest incarnation of the Ukraine crisis, which goes back to 2014. And this is something that you know a lot about because you were there. So tell us, when did you first start getting involved in the Ukraine crisis? So it goes back a little bit further. So first time I actually visited Ukraine was December 2013. So the very early stages of what became the sort of Ukrainian revolution against the Yanukovych regime. So I covered the revolution from sort of its inception, so which started end of November, early December 2013, spent, I think, a week there, that period sort of trying to understand what was the kind of impetus behind this kind of street movement, why people were out protesting in god-awful, horrible, cold conditions, you know, and over that Christmas period, things escalated, and I, we went back again in the January as protests became much larger, the state forces became more belligerent in their responses to it. People were killed in mid-January, and this only sought to sort of increase the size of the protests even more. Uh, the organization got better, got stronger. People were prepared to really, well, as they literally did, lay down their lives. And we covered that escalation. And, and then we came back in the, in the February as things again kicked up a gear, and we were there for when the Ukrainian police and special forces under Yanukovych attacked protesters in Maidan with a small arms fire and killed hundreds of protesters. The protesters obviously fought back and eventually pushed the uh, police forces back up into the government district. And then obviously, as you know, most people will know now that the, the revolution there was a, a success and Yanukovych ended up fleeing. We spent some time in his mansion after it was taken over by protesters. And that was, yeah, that's, so that was the sort of beginning of, of my time in Ukraine. And then obviously that revolution, you know, interim government came into place. And then not even really a month later, we saw Russian little green men in Crimea, a colleague of mine, Simon Ostrovsky, covered that period excellently with other colleagues. And he then also covered what started in, in eastern Ukraine. So it's difficult to kind of how to really describe it, whether it, some people have claimed it's a counter-revolution, others obviously it was a sort of more concerted effort by Russia to foment some sort of, you know, separatist conflict in eastern Ukraine, which is definitely what it became. And then I swapped in with him after he was actually kidnapped by separatist forces in Slavyansk. And after that, he obviously returned home to recuperate and I went in to Donetsk on actually the, the first time we got out filming was the 1st of May, which is when this separatist protest movement basically started disarming Ukrainian police forces. There were clashes, sort of in sort of riot style clashes, tear gas, rubber bullets, stun grenades outside the prosecutor's office. And that was when you sort of saw the tables turning in favor of the sort of separatist forces. And then over the next month, you saw them taking over military bases, wielding, you know, small arms, and, and you know, conflict was starting, you know, there had already been serious clashes outside of Donetsk and Slavyansk and other towns between Ukrainian forces and, and separatist forces. And by the time I left of my first stint there, so that was end of May, we covered the very start of the battle for the Donetsk International Airport, which saw both sides using artillery, uh, the Ukrainians using air power 
which included fighter jet and attack helicopters. And, you know, that was just another escalation into in, what, you know, that conflict became, which is, you know, it was a really large scale conflict involving all sorts of munitions and closer to what we expect we might see in the next few potentially days, weeks and months if Russia decides to escalate once again. So what are the makeup of the two sides here? Because the way you're describing it is there is an element of a civil war, a civil war about the future of Ukraine. And the political moment that sparks all of this is when President Viktor Yanukovych rejects the deal for greater integration with the European Union, despite the fact that this appears to be an overwhelming want, demand of the people of Ukraine. And this leads to student protests and, and growing and growing protests that leads more to that violent conflict that you tell us about. But when it comes into these little green men and women that we hear so much about, of course, there's this element of the Russian state getting involved. So is it as simple as saying that this is two different politically separate parts of Ukraine who are fighting for Ukraine's future? Or is there a little more to it than that? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's definitely definitely the latter. I mean, obviously, the revolution was very much a, a mostly Ukrainian affair. There were protesters on the sort of pro-EU, pro-kind of Western-looking revolutionary side that had come from other countries, mostly other Soviets, you know, ex-Soviet states. There were Ar Armenian guys there, Georgian protesters, and, and, you know, people from those regions that also lived in Ukraine that also wanted... Ukraine to move in in a sort of pro-Western direction. But yeah, as you saw in Crimea, these were Russian soldiers getting involved in eastern Ukraine. You know, there were Russian soldiers and Russian security elements there from early stages. And, you know, when it comes to sort of July, August, September, very clear that Russian soldiers in the thousands were involved in uh, the fighting in eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass, uh, trying to push back the Ukrainians after they'd had a string of successes from sort of May onwards, May to July. So if you say it's a civil war to lots of Ukrainians, they get very upset for obvious reasons, because it isn't really a civil war. You know, this is a, this is a war that was instigated by Russia. They have many thousands of troops there at the moment in Donbass, I'm sure, but as also many even more on the border right now, this is this conflict wouldn't have happened without Russian interference, let's put it that way, I'm pretty sure. So yeah, it's definitely not a civil war. You know, the way I often describe it is uh, looking back on, on those sort of fighting in, in the summer, it's Russian-backed separatists in those early stages. Backing can be from, you know, materiel, so, you know, grad launchers, small arms, all that sort of stuff to, yeah, boots on the ground. And if you only have to look at the Battle of Ilovaisk and its uh, aftermath to see how obvious that that really was. See, this is interesting to me because I say this is a, a battle about the, the future of Ukraine, perhaps, but is it also a battle about the future form of Russia? Because you're, you're talking here about elements coming in from Georgia and from Chechnya, and we know that there have been conflicts bubbling in those regions since the end of the Cold War, most specifically in, in Georgia in 2008. So is this a, a broader battle brought back home to Ukraine, where you have elements from around Russia's borders, from different fights, different nations, that are, are really trying to take the fight to Russia in this, this new, latest hot conflict? It's a great question. I, I think there's definitely that kind of push-pull of where this 
where these sphere of influences are supposed to meet. Russia expects that it has a sphere of influence across post-Soviet countries. You know, as you mentioned, you know, the conflict in Georgia is, is a part of that. The conflict in Ukraine is a part of that. Russia is very concerned about NATO expansion, although I think that sort of excuse for its involvement in Ukraine is yeah, pretty poor, <laughs> given how far, you know, moving troops into Crimea because, oh, well, you know, Ukraine is almost certainly going to join NATO now post-revolution is obviously completely ridiculous. NATO membership takes a very long time to sort of happen, to meet those criteria. And it's never a guarantee, even if the state wants that. So it's, it's all about that sphere of influence. And Russia doesn't like it when post-Soviet countries decide to go a different way. And Ukraine has done that twice in a 20-year period. First, the Orange Revolution in 2004. And then, you know, 10 years later, you have the Euromaidan Revolution, another sort of pro-Western sort of revolution that a country and its people wanting to largely move away from a Russian sphere of influence that many people felt was holding them back. And, you know, now Ukraine, Ukrainians have, I believe, visa-free travel to the EU and, you know, its prospects are likely better. I think many Ukrainians would certainly believe and argue that. So I think when these conflicts break out, of course, it's going to attract people from other post-Soviet states that would also want to move in that direction. And including Russians themselves, I've met Russian fighters volunteering for Ukrainian forces in the eastern Ukraine. So I'm sure it's there weren't masses of them, but they were there. And they felt strongly enough that what Russia was doing was needed opposing and traveled to another country to essentially fight other Russian people. It's bizarre, <laughs> I suppose, from the outside, but it makes sense when you speak to these guys, what kind of brings them to that location. Or it's, you know, not bizarre. It's a symbol of a continually divided Russia as well. Now, take us a little bit into your, your time there. You've mentioned some of the key battles and you were witness to a number of these during your time reporting for Vice. What were these battles like? Because as Western nations, we've got very much used to fighting wars by remote control, drone systems, small detachment of special operation forces. We hear very little about these back home. In fact, it would be a hard push to know where we are deployed around the world. But this is a, a very different type of warfare. We're talking trenches. We're talking sieges, mortars, attack helicopters and jets like you've mentioned. Isn't this very much a return to a a more traditional, older-fashioned type of war, perhaps one that we're not used to anymore. Yeah, I'd say it feels, and it felt, very 20th century, which I think I suppose a lot of people would be able to recognise a bit more. I think insurgency warfare is, is perhaps difficult to get your head around, that kind of small-scale fighting. This was at times very large scale. We're talking, you know, thousands of troops on either side involved in battles. I think the, to choose one word... It's terrifying. It's a scale in which, as I mentioned, no one's really used to, but it's just an, at times overwhelming firepower. You know, we're talking mass use of, you know, rockets and artillery, just flattening towns, villages, city districts, both sides using them. So there's that element of just never feeling when you're close to kind of the fighting you're never really safe. You know, you might be able to think, okay, well, the small arms clashes are down this street, but both sides are using mortars, 
howitzer-type artillery, multiple launch rocket systems. So you're not really very safe at all. If you're anywhere near the fighting, you know, you're, you're very much at risk. And so it can feel very overwhelming, terrifying, scary. You have to really be thinking on your feet on the ground. You have to really try and mitigate those risks as much as possible. You're seeing tanks rolling around. You're seeing recoilless rifles, you know, mortars, people firing sniper fire. I've had that unfortunate experience a number of times in eastern Ukraine and other other conflicts. But yeah, it's it's definitely on a scale that I think a lot of people would recognize in films and books and things, but we're not used to actually seeing, you know, and I think credit to, you know, my colleagues and, and us at Vice, you know, really getting into this conflict in a way that others, I believe, weren't quite. And we were getting close to things and, and really trying to let our audience get a good look at what this war looks like for everyone involved, not just, you know, those fighting on the front, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of the stuff we did focused on the impact on civilians, which was very high, that use of kind of indiscriminate artillery laid waste to towns and villages and, as I said, city districts and civilians were always caught in the crossfire. And that aspect of it, that kind of extremely visceral, brutal aspect of war is something that we saw pretty regularly and we didn't shy away from in terms of our work either. We wanted, we felt like it was our duty to show people this is, this is what this kind of warfare looks like. It's indiscriminate, it's brutal, it's horrible, it's terrifying. And I think people just weren't, I think a lot of people in the West especially are detached from what that really looks like. And for good reasons, you know, you don't want to have to be confronted by the realities of war. You know, it's an awful experience for everyone involved, but we felt it was very important. These are ordinary people that I think it was important to have their experiences broadcasted so that people could kind of relate to that and that includes soldiers and fighters too you know on both sides those early stages we're not talking about extremely professional career soldiers here we're talking a lot of volunteers bank managers builders businessmen and women and there were plenty of female fighters too this wasn't an all-male affair Hi everyone, I'm Jimmy Doherty, TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. I've got a brand new podcast where we discuss all things green, from nature to recycling, to foraging, to potty training cows. Yeah, I'm not joking, apparently it helps with pollution. Each week you'll be hearing from some recognisable faces off the telly and eco-experts who will tell us how they try and sometimes fail to live a greener life. People like the founder of the Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith. It is only people who don't know what they're doing that can do marvellous things in some areas because received wisdom will sometimes, you'll talk yourself out of it if you've got lots of people who've done it before. Ecopreneur Ashita Cabri-Davis on why renting our clothes might be the future. You know, you might feel great about yourself because you did a wardrobe clear out and you donated things to charity shops, but 90% of those donations are completely worthless and they're sent to landfills in Asian and African countries. And my old pal Jamie Oliver on how to eat in season. I think I was stupid enough, naive enough <laughs> and unspoilt enough about the world that we live in. Tune into On Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Take us into a bit more detail into that, Henry, because... I know that you were you were there, you were in the mud, on the trenches, you were in these makeshift bunkers as the mortars were going off around you, you were sheltering in these makeshift bunkers with those people, those fighters, those men and women that have chosen to take up arms and to fight the Russian and separatist forces. What type of person has taken up the fight here in Ukraine? Yeah, it's pretty varied. Ukraine's army was in a bit of a sorry state at the start of this conflict, uh, been pretty neglected budget-wise, equipment-wise, so it wasn't particularly ready to fight a conflict on that scale. So what you did see were sort of late April, early May, these volunteer battalions in Ukraine, uh, on the Ukrainian side, sorry, start to appear. And, you know, their origins are murky. You know, we're talking some backed by oligarchs, some just local men and women deciding to sort of take up arms. Those battalions now have mostly been integrated into the Ukrainian armed forces or police, sort of militarized police forces. But one force that we sort of spent time with was the Donbass Battalion. And they, it was quite a weird experience. We we sort of made contact with them. We knew they'd been sort of operating. This was early May, early mid-May 2014. Uh, and they sort of invited us to their sort of training camp a little bit further back from the fighting in a, in a different region. And it was a bizarre sort of kids summer camp, essentially. And it was just full of all these kind of men and women in a sort of hodgepodge mix of kind of camo gear, wielding assault rifles, practicing their drill. And and we sort of talked to some of the, the volunteers there. And yeah, it was a mix of ages, young and old, men, women, white collar, blue collar, bank managers, bank tellers. It was a real kind of bit of a cross section of Ukrainian society. And they decided to leave behind their safe jobs, their families, and put themselves in great risk. And, and we saw that great risk not that long afterwards. We had basically heard of some clashes to the west of Donetsk, I believe it was. And we went to the location 
And basically, uh, there was a separatist checkpoint attacked by the Donbass Battalion, but then they themselves were attacked by reinforcements. And we came across, you know, a scene of essentially carnage. You know, we're talking bullet-ridden Land Rovers full of blood, you know, dead soldiers, dead fighters, Donbass fighters. It appeared one had probably been executed after being caught. And, you know, these were ordinary people and they they put themselves in harm's way for something that that they strongly believed in in protecting their homeland. And you can look at, we spent time obviously on the separatist side of this conflict too. And we met separatist fighters who again were volunteers. We met a a man and his son who joined the same unit. And that was kind of a bit strange, you know, why you'd let your kids join up. But again, they, on their side of things, they felt very strongly that they were protecting their homeland, depending on how you view the conflict, whether you feel that's legitimate or not is is up to you. But they felt very strongly in their beliefs and they were themselves putting, putting themselves in, in a very difficult, dangerous situation. And yeah, you just saw that same, those the same reasons for people joining up on both sides of the conflict. And yeah, again, leaving behind relatively safe jobs and homes and families and taking the ultimate risk, really. Now, you mentioned civilians a little bit earlier on. I was just wondering if you could take us through a bit more of the civilian experience in this war. Has the Ukrainian government been able to evacuate most of those from these points of high tension? Or are there still civilians at risk in the midst of the fighting? Because I know it's, it's obviously very hard to leave your homes. Families have been separated. This isn't a border that's been there very long. These are just towns in between a few miles apart where you, you may have your, your grandmother or your, your father or your cousin living up the road and you don't want to leave. So are there still a lot of civilians caught up in the fighting and, and suffering from food insecurity and a, a lack of water? Absolutely, yes. So post the Battle of Debaltseva, so that's January, February 2015, that was the last major kind of offensive of any type in the conflict. Not to say it's been quiet ever since. Obviously, there's been small arms clashes all the time in those years. But the front line after Debaltseva basically solidified, however you want to sort of call it. And that front line cuts through dozens and dozens of villages in some places literally through the middle of them and obviously when there is any type of conflict there are refugees people flee these areas of contention the hot zones and many thousands did in eastern ukraine but in some of these villages there are holdouts we've met a whole bunch in our time in eastern ukraine some just felt they just couldn't bear to leave their homes. They've worked all their lives to get to where they are and, and have a have a home and grow their own fruit and veg. And they don't know anywhere different. They don't they might not have family anywhere else. They might, you know, not feel safe going anywhere else weirdly. That's their home. They just want to stay there, very stubborn. And there's part of me that can understand it. There's part of me that after being in those same villages coming under shell fire, you're like, why? Just but people want to stay in their homes. And that is a that is a story all across the front line on, on either side. And we're not just talking on the Ukrainian side. And yes, it's not just the threat of shell fire, random bullets coming through your wall. We're talking major food insecurity, major energy insecurity. And obviously, Ukraine is obscenely cold in the winter. So that's a real issue. Soldiers on both sides of the conflicts or conflict line will often help those that the holdouts in these villages delivering food and supplies but there are also lots of volunteer organizations that deliver 
aid smaller volunteer operations but also the the bigger the sort of uns and the, the red crosses and those types in january and february 2016 we made a film that looked at the sort of the impact on soldiers or civilians the sort of traumatic impact on what it's like to experience be a part of this conflict a lot of that was was going to these villages with a an aid organization and they were sort of volunteer psychologists and they were like trying to sort of speak to and listen to civilians and record their experiences and try and offer advice and help to deal with symptoms of post-traumatic stress basically and they would go and visit soldiers on the front line and they'd sit down with them and try and offer that kind of help because there wasn't much expertise in PTSD in Ukraine. I mean, in terms of combat-induced PTSD, the last time Ukrainians had fought in a major conflict was Afghanistan in the 80s. So there wasn't really much expertise within the military to deal with that, and certainly not in a kind of civilian aspect either. So there are holdouts. They're very brave. It wouldn't be what I would do, but, you know, it's their home and they want to stay, and fair enough. And putting all of this together, Henry, what can we expect in the near future? Has much changed in terms of the Ukrainian forces? Has there been a a revolution in their military capabilities? Will this be a a much harder fight for the Russians? And and I must say that we're at this point right now as we're recording where there are last-ditch diplomatic talks taking place, rumours that war may be able to be avoided, but at the same time, nations, multiples of them, telling their national citizens to leave Ukraine as soon as possible. So what can we expect in the near future? I think we can expect, we were talking about earlier, that kind of 20th century scale of warfare that we haven't been used to. I think we can sort of expect that, but on steroids. (laughs) It's maybe one way to describe it, unfortunately. We've seen the kind of elements that Russia is moving to the border. We're talking every aspect of their armed forces, from ballistic missile launchers, air cover, mass tank deployments, artillery, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And on the Ukrainian side, there has been somewhat of a revolution since the outbreak of the conflict. As I said earlier, the Ukrainian army at the start of this was not in a good shape. Over the seven, eight years since, there's been waves of recruitment and lots of those soldiers now have combat experience on the front line in the Donbass. There's been waves of training from allied partners the americans the canadians the british although i do when people sort of bring this up i always sort of say well to be honest i think the ukrainians probably have as much to much wisdom to impart on those forces as the other way around western forces nato forces however you want to describe it haven't fought a conflict like this in a very long time so i think the ukrainians have a lot to impart there but obviously with this massive increase in tension and potentially a new escalation of the conflict. We've seen actually NATO forces in particular delivering new weaponry to Ukraine that they haven't had in these kinds of numbers. There were Javelin deployments, I think, in 2018, anti-tank missiles. They were very contentious and back when that happened, but in since January, they've been flooding in. The Brits have been sending in lots of anti-tank weaponry. Baltic states have been funneling in Stinger missiles. So Ukraine is rearming has been for the last few years to try and reach parity with Russia as much as possible. But obviously, that is a really tall order and not likely to happen. Turkey has supplied drones to Ukraine, the same drones that we've seen in action in Nagorno-Karabakh and in Libya and Syria to great effect. 
And I think part of this slow rearmament is one of the many reasons, I think, why Russia is choosing to escalate at this moment. It doesn't want to get to a stage where Ukraine becomes more of a difficult opponent. I mean, right now, Ukraine will definitely be a difficult opponent. There's no doubt about it. This isn't 2014. This is years of rearming, troop recruitment on huge scales. And like I said before, a lot of those soldiers have really good combat experience and not just the fighting but also the trauma first aid aspect of it you know how to treat traumatic wounds on the battlefield and ukraine also has quite a good a robust arms manufacturing business and they export around the world and bizarrely some of those parts they used to export to russia maybe that's a part of the reason why as i said before russia would want to act now rather than wait any longer Well, all we can do now is hope that diplomacy wins through because everything you've told us here today, Henry, shows just how incredibly brutal this conflict would be. There's no such thing as an easy war, and this most certainly will not be an easy war on the people of Ukraine, those fighting on both sides and the civilians as well. Henry, thank you so much for your time. No worries, James. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at JamesRogersHistory, and on TikTok also at JamesRogersHistory. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.